This is the Square Peg Podcast, starring Andrew Lawrence and a cast of mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And now, here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destinations the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. And thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The Needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasoans. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sions are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and then they rock out on weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com, on Facebook, and download their album on all streaming services. Before we get started with today's episode of the Square Peg Podcast, I'd like to give a very special shout-out to a very special person. One of my two best friends in this world, somebody I have known so long, I actually don't remember a time not knowing him. Command Sergeant Major Adam Farrar of the United States Army's 10th Special Forces Group is calling it a career after 26 years. 22 years of those 26 have been served with Army Special Forces. He has literally been to all the places, done all of the things, and now it's time for him to say goodbye, I'm retiring. Adam, thank you so much for your service. Enjoy your retirement. And I would be remiss if I did not mention Rachel, who has been a dutiful Army wife for almost all of those 26 years. She has put up with the never-ending deployments, three, I believe, tours of Germany, and now it is her time to also retire as an Army wife. Congratulations, you guys have made it. Thank you very much for your service. I have two very special guests today, Edward and Corky Fox. Edward is a professor of marketing and the marketing department chair at Southern Methodist University, and his wife, Corky, is also a graduate of the United States Military Academy, as is Ed, and she is a purveyor of health supplements as well as cooking wares. Guys, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. So... You guys have a very interesting story, and we're going to start off uh, talking about how you guys, well, before you guys met, you guys, as I said, are both graduates of the United States Military Academy, although you didn't graduate in the same year and didn't actually know each other while you were there, correct? Correct. Now, if there was anybody who had what what one might call a, 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 a predictable or a, or a fairly typical path, uh, to the United States Military Academy, it would be Ed. Uh, you are uh, what they call a legacy, correct? That's true. Your father, uh, Eugene Fox, retired Major General, U.S. Army, was a class of 56, if I'm not correct? That's right. He graduated 25 years before I did. And so you were an Army brat growing up probably all over the place. Um, I know you guys spent some time in El Paso. Uh, I think at one point you may your mother may even had uh, three boys under the age of five at once. Uh, she did. She had three boys who were uh, under the age of three, I believe, at the same time. Uh, so, yeah, she was a, a young bride. My mother's from El Paso, and, and her family uh, is, uh, uh, I guess, a legacy. Her family's from El Paso. And that's actually where she and my father met. He was uh, a young officer at Fort Bliss. Uh, they met at a, at a dance, um, and uh, the rest is history. Uh, they ended up having three kids very young, so uh, I believe my mother had her third child before the age of 22. Well, um, believe you which me, was much more common 
uh, in that era than it is today. Um, but they were, and we were an Army family. They were an Army couple, and my father stayed in for 34 years. Well, believe you me, your mother, Evelyn, uh, is is quite the uh, individual, and I, I can almost guarantee you she's going to get an invitation to be on the Square Peg podcast before too long. Uh, she's got quite the story to tell as weaves its way through many decades and many different duty stations and all kinds mm-hmm. of things like that. At what point, Ed, did you realize that it was in the cards for you to attend the United States Military Academy? Uh, well, I don't, I don't know that I ever really figured that out. Um, I was an Army brat, so, uh, so we moved around a lot. And, in fact, I, uh, I moved to Germany for my senior year of high school. So I left our, uh, our home in northern Virginia, where my father had been assigned to the Pentagon, and, uh, and moved to Germany uh, to Frankfurt, uh, or, or just south of Frankfurt, uh, as a senior in high school, which, which isn't really what, you, uh, what you're looking for as a rising senior in high school. But having said that, I was outside the United States, and I didn't have a chance to visit campuses and do those things. And so uh, my older brother had attended the University of Virginia. My father had attended the, the uh, United States Military Academy. And those just seemed to be logical places to apply. So that's where I applied and, and from Germany made the decision to, uh, to go to West Point. And what year was this you entered the academy? I, I entered in 77. I graduated in 1981. And so 1977 was when you entered, and if I'm not mistaken, that was the year after uh, the United States Military Academy, as well as the Naval Academy and Air Force Academy, had their first entering classes that included females. It, that's exactly right. So, uh, so my class was the second uh, with females, and we actually uh, came in as this first class was, uh, was uh, aging up through, uh, through the four years, and saw what uh, what pioneering in that way means, both uh, the, the, the positives and the negatives. Well, forgetting maybe for a moment that you have your wife uh, within earshot of you, uh, try to take yourself back, <laughs> uh, you know, some, some 45 years almost. Uh, what, what was your thought? What were your thoughts on, on entering this, uh, you know, storied institution steeped in tradition uh, and having to contend with all that was going on? Was that an issue? Was that something you addressed? Was that something you thought of? Did you feel one way or the other about, about uh, that tradition having been broken and, and kind of entering a new era? Well, I thought about it, but it only as kind of an echo uh, of what others thought about it. So uh, keep in mind that when I entered, the, uh, the first class with females were, were uh, rising sophomores or second years, and there were two classes above them who had been uh, steeped in tradition and had, uh, had come up through the, the ranks without women. And particularly with the, uh, the, the class above them, the class of 1979, uh, there, there were people who felt like uh, history had, had somehow uh, been betrayed and, and that women didn't belong there. And it, it was clearly a minority, but a vocal minority. So, so that was my introduction to it, is that there were people who were, who were senior to me who were unhappy about it. And so I was aware of it in that sense, but, I mean, from an equity standpoint, I never really considered that it was bad or wrong. Why would you not 
uh, have uh, have women in this in this leadership factory. Um, we we need women leaders as well as as male leaders. Well, if if Ed, you had uh, a fairly typical or expected path uh, towards your being appointed to the United States Military Academy, Corky would kind of be on the other side of that coin. You grew up, I believe, in a small town in New England. Yes. Uh, rural New Hampshire town. Mm-hmm. Rural New Hampshire, and you've told me your father was a Korean War veteran uh, in the Navy. Yes. And yes. Uh, but but no service academies or anything like that. No, and um, honestly, hadn't really considered uh, an academy um, until the very end of my high school uh, experience, and when it started uh, showing up articles in the paper, because I was graduating. Uh, high school in 1980, and that was the first class of women to graduate from the academy. So the year before, my junior year of high school, you could see all the different articles in the paper because there was a, um, I think of one or two women from New Hampshire in that 1980 class, and so they were being featured in the paper. And um, so that was one um, exposure I had. Um, The other was probably... I ran a lot. I was a, a track star in the uh, New England area, and uh, it was during one of the, I think it was like a JC Junior Olympics, and I had won the overall for the women, and a coach came up to me, and he actually asked if I um, considered applying, and I hadn't really. Um, and my, my, mom, my mom was a big proponent. She thought it was a cool opportunity, a great way to get a free education and a neat experience. So um, I didn't apply anywhere else, actually. I only applied to West Point. Did you have an opportunity? Of course, we're talking many, you know, four decades ago. We certainly didn't have social media or text message or anything like that. Were there any avenues for you to reach out to uh, what would be the first graduating class and kind of ask questions and get an idea of what to expect? You know, I suppose possibly, but honestly, I never even visited. So I was so lost that first day, the R day that is like, very hectic for um, brand new uh, incoming plebes. So I actually got lost on on post or on uh, in the barracks area as we were shuffling around doing our different things. So I did not visit. I didn't. Uh, I just knew kind of what it was about, and I just went through the process. And I had no clue what I wanted to do. That was a big reason why I went. A couple reasons. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had no clear idea of. Because I liked every, all my classes. I was a good student. And um, my parents also didn't have the money. They only had enough money for one year for us, uh, for, uh, four of us. So I was one of four. And it was a great way to pay for my school. So Do you, that was it, my thinking. And of course, uh, if I can hop in with a six degrees of separation story <laughs> here. Uh, so my younger sister was also a track athlete. And uh, she was considering West Point uh, after Corky had arrived uh, and actually did take a visit to West Point. So she was aware of, of, of the institution. They, they were interested in her, and she took a visit and ended up staying with Corky's best friend, um, which we didn't know until much later. So, And I've never um, heard that story. You, you, now I know. <laughs> when people, yeah, when people, um, when you visit, I, I didn't even think about doing a campus visit. My my parents, you know, I didn't even think about it. I anyway, doesn't matter. But um, when you would visit, you would stay in one of the rooms of the plebes of the freshmen. 
And so um, I actually had um, someone stay with me once, and she ended up coming. And she actually now lives only 15 minutes from me. And it's kind of fun because now we're best buddies. But um I'm sure anyway, that yeah. I'm sure that first day in your first week and and first summer you spend uh, at the military academy is a bit of a shock to the system, uh, especially if you didn't grow up around uh, around uh, the type of military discipline and um, and and all that goes with it. Thinking back, were you able to tell or differentiate between the experience you had um, with being yelled at and being ordered to do this and do that? with your male counterparts in your class? Um, I, I would say that there were definitely women were much um, more hassled and hazed. I think that was more so once you went into the academic year. When you were during the summer, a lot of it had to do with your physical fitness. And if you – I was a, a, an athlete, so I didn't have any problems and I was – probably faster and can do more push-ups than some of the guys. Um, so kind of you've gotten that little respect from people and you don't uh, get hassled. And it's more of uh, your, you don't have as many upperclassmen uh, as you do during the school year because you are mostly the, the, during that summer, it's all the incoming freshmen are being trained and you have their cadre of upperclassmen, but they're not throngs of upperclassmen. So you're not getting hazed by your own classmates. You're getting hazed by your own leadership, but it wasn't as um, as pronounced as when you hit the school year and all of a sudden you had three upper classes, you know, three full classes of, of upperclassmen who will do their darndest to make your life um, yeah, interesting. Well, that's their job, though, correct? <laughs> Um, yes, but they go above and beyond, uh, I think, with some of the ladies. Uh, you know what, too? I think it depends on what company you ended up in, because there are four regiments, and that's how they house you in the in the barracks, um, and each regiment has the different companies, and um, Ed can probably jump in and tell me what he thinks, but I think third and fourth regiments were considered a little bit easier than the first and second regiments. Um well, while, so, we're, while yeah. we're at it, Ed, what what was uh, you know as as somebody who was there when when women were just starting to enter, what were the discussions like? Uh, maybe not your own personal opinion, but what was the atmosphere like among your your classmates with regard to having to to now contend with uh, these these female underclassmen? Well, when it when it came to uh, to female underclassmen, I, I I think you know we had peers and, and classmates who, who were females as well. So it just didn't seem strange at all. It, it was status quo. And, and, and so as, as we got to be more senior and approached our, our third and fourth years, then, then there were women um, in every class, and it just didn't seem to be as novel. Now, there there were some operational things that were different you know there were uh, there were different standards for for the physical tests there were uh, something as mundane as you know there's an additional set of bathrooms for women that that there weren't uh prior to uh to having women in in school but most of that uh initial um, change it was long past by the time that that we were getting more senior, and and we were used to it. You know, I can tell you from my own personal perspective, I was a twenty year old 
kid, and and I was easily adaptable to almost everything. So you know, it wasn't uh, it, it it wasn't uh, a big shock to me. It, it just was it it was my uh, my college years. And I can remember uh, talking to you, Ed. Of, of course, the, our age difference, I think, is about 15 years. And I remember being a little guy, you know, three, four, five years old, and just thinking that you and your brothers were the, absolutely the coolest people I'd ever met. And um, I, I remember, you know, doing some hitting your hands, actually, working mitts with you when I was a little kid. And I remember you telling me that <laughs> that uh, all all students at the military academies are required to participate at least in, in intramural sports, and that for the men it was either boxing or wrestling was one of the required um, now you you didn't participate in any varsity sports while you were there, did you? Uh, yeah, early on, my first year, I, I ran track. Um, I, I was a track athlete in, in high school. I, I wasn't fast enough, uh, but I was fit, and I, I worked hard at it. Uh, but at the end of the day, I figured that uh, that my uh, my future didn't lie in running around in circles. So uh, I. I actually participated in a lot of uh, of sports there uh, intramurals including uh boxing so what you were referring to as uh, as freshmen we were required to uh, to take a series of of uh physical training courses including swimming and boxing and wrestling so you know they were they were functional skills that you know uh, as a as a person, as a person in a uh, in a martial profession, you you should have, and so we practice those things. And I came to enjoy boxing. Uh, I I fought, I guess, three of my four years uh, in intramurals, and I found it really, really um, a positive experience for me. Uh, so I did that. I did other things. I ran and and uh, and played some other sports. But everybody had to do it. It was uh, it was just part of the curriculum. On the other hand, Corky, you were actually a varsity athlete uh, at at West Point. Competed uh, mm-hmm. Division One. Tell me about that. I ended up doing track, varsity track, all four years. So both winter and spring, and you kind of trained with the cross country. Um, during the, the fall, I guess, but um, I ran all four years. I was actually considering, because I played basketball, too. I love basketball. And an interesting story is during the end of the Spirit, which is that first summer, the staff cadre called all the women into a tent to kind of give us some guidance. They, I guess, wanted to caution us about fraternization, et cetera. And I had some guys kind of tell me, that um, I should stay, stay away from basketball because they're gay, <laughs> to be honest with you. The, 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 the teammates. Um, they said a lot of the, girl, the, the ladies were gay on the basketball team, and then I probably shouldn't do that. Um, that's not why I didn't do basketball. I tried out for a little bit, but uh, it was all a real shock just being there and um, – between academics, I'm a very social person, so I never got started on my homework uh, as quickly as I should have. And I did a lot of socializing with my classmates, and the guys always took their break in the girls' room. And anyway, I just couldn't handle doing both basketball and uh, track at the same time. Now, being a Division One athlete, did that excuse you from having to participate in the daily physical training that you otherwise would have? 
Or did you get a yeah, double there dose? Were pros and cons. There was pros and cons, actually. Um, what was nice is, is that the freshman year, I don't think it's that way anymore, but you had to, to square a meal. It's a lot of uh, rules that you had at the dining tables at the mealtime with your company. And I only had to do that for a couple months. And then once track started, they fit you on your separate sports tables. And when you uh, at your respective sport, the rules of fourth class kind of go out the window and you don't have to do that. You could just be free and talk among your classmates. So that was awesome. So you, you weren't, you weren't subject to hazing during mealtime yeah. if you yeah. were a, a, a interscholastic athlete. And that was yeah. one of the big, uh, that was one of the big uh, bonuses being involved in, uh, in interscholastic sports. Well, if you can but take... I will say the varsity sports had a lot um, more requirements than the intramural sports because you'd go to class 7.30 to 3.30, and then you're hitting uh, the gym at 4 to, to do your track, and then we didn't get to dinner until 7, whereas I don't know how long I think the intramural made an hour. So, you know. There's positive and negative. I, I say it's a positive experience because I have some great friends from track. So. Something that has been getting a lot of attention, and rightly so, in the last, I want to say, decade or so, uh, is the unfortunate occurrence of sexual assault of women in the military. By no means would I say that it certainly didn't. It, it was, of course, happening uh, back when you were there. I don't imagine it was something that was talked about, though. Or you were given any warnings about to what? You know, to, I don't. I I never had an issue. I didn't realize how many of my classmates did until just in the last, you know, maybe five, ten years when we formed a Facebook group. So on Facebook, we have a separate class Facebook. We have women uh, of our class. We have a, just a separate women's group. So people go on there and they can – some people got really – some of the ladies – were raped or otherwise, you know, sexually assaulted in different ways. And um, I didn't hear about it a lot. I don't think they talked about it or announced anything. And maybe it got swept under the rug. Um, but I personally didn't have any adverse um, experiences. I think a lot of it, maybe because I was, I'm five nine, so I was pretty tall and strong. I don't feel like I was ever um, in any kind of danger that way. Um, so, but it's, it's a lot of stories have come out and it's just that a lot and of stories. Are you yeah. aware of any measures that have been taken? Um, not necessarily military wide, I, I would imagine so, but at the academies, is there some sort of awareness, uh, that's brought up or any kind of class, uh, on how to deal with things or resources for people who feel like they are being, uh, dealt with, uh, inappropriately? I'm going to say probably yes, but I honestly have not kept up with everything, all the different changes. There are a lot of changes at West Point, which I think are better. They're a lot better than um, back when I was at West Point. Um, they Now the girls can have their hair long. They don't have to get it cut short. Um, they don't have as strict uh, rules. The honor code kind of stuff. You don't get kicked out if you lie about your weight, which I had uh, someone <laughs> from my company, one of the ladies got kicked out for that, lying about her weight, because it's, you don't get spring break if you're overweight. Um, and then, um, they do more of trying to retain people now. 
versus the attrition because the attrition rate was two-thirds of you left. That's one of the things they said the first summer. You get there, you line up, you know, look to your left, look to your right. Only one of you can still be here at graduation day. So well, this, um, is the, this is the point you know, that of... To me, is not a... What? I'm going to go ahead and flip a coin here, and I flipped the coin, and Corky, you you won. Uh, I have to ask you. Oh, yes. <laughs> you, there are only two yeah. rules to this segment. One rule is you only have five seconds to answer once I tell you go, and the other rule is you, uh, your answer can't be Donald Trump. I need you to tell me somebody who's in the news today for all the wrong reasons. It doesn't have to be a politician. It could be an athlete or an actor. Somebody who's in the news today for all the wrong reasons, somebody who's a bit of a clown, a bit of a boob, a bit of a jackass. You've got five okay. seconds to answer. Go. Um, I'm not good when you put me on the spot. I'm sorry. Uh, a jackass in the news? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Can I save you? Let, let, let Ed go first. Let yeah, Ed say. Uh, Ed can save you. Go yeah, ahead, Ed. Yeah. I got to go with Roger Stone. Ladies and gentlemen, Roger Stone is our jabroni of the week. Our jabroni of the week is brought to you by the Cardenas Law Firm. <laughs> Finding an attorney to help you with your legal issues can be rough. How do you find an effective and honest attorney without sacrificing your financial health? The Cardenas Law Firm breaks the mold by offering exceptional service without breaking the bank. Find them online at www.cardenaslawfirmllc.com or by calling 575-650-6003. Don't call some jabroni lawyer at some jabroni law firm. Call the Cardenas Law Firm. And thank you very much, Ed, for coming to the rescue there. Um... You guys both graduated, of course, not in the same year. Ed, what year did you graduate, and what was your degree? Uh, so I graduated in 1981. We all got uh, degrees in general engineering. We didn't have majors. Uh, you know, we were able to concentrate in, in, in certain disciplines, but it was an engineering degree. And, Corky, you uh, left for a year and then came back, so you graduated in 1985. Right. And your degree? And the same. It, it was... It's the same as Ed's, and it wasn't until the year after me that you could major. So. And, of course, you guys didn't know each other, but several years no. later, in, I want to say, was it 1986 at Fort Bragg? Yes. Uh, yes, yes. And I, I actually remember that day very clearly, um, though Ed may not, but I do. And so you recognized Ed from the Academy? Yeah, I walked into um, the little deli next to the Post Exchange, and just to grab a sandwich and he was sitting there at the table and I thought I recognized him and it was, you know, I, I can't let that go by. I had to ask. So after I finished lunch, I asked him um, where he went to school and he had me sit down, wrote my number on the paper on his newspaper before I left. He called me for a date and three months later we were engaged. That sounds like an awfully, I, of course I can't say anything because my story was <laughs> almost as quick uh, with my wife. Did you guys ever, uh, I'm going to go ahead, while I'm thinking about it, I'll go ahead and ask this. Uh, given you guys were both commissioned officers in the Army, uh, was there ever any concern about being separated or, or once you got married, getting separate orders? I mean, how does that all work? Um, I'll take a quick answer and hand it to Ed because um, I was on my first post at Fort Bragg and Ed was on his second. We may have stayed in longer if, the engineer corps hadn't taken away Ed's teaching slot. So we ended up getting it. So I'm going to let Ed go. So we didn't have the issues, basically, of having to worry about that. The, the, the Army's actually really um, uh, sensitive to dual career issues, and they, they do synchronize assignments. On the other hand, it, it's the nature of that, uh, of that world that, that some assignments are unaccompanied. 
you know, if, uh, if for example, uh, in, in this day and age you were assigned to uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, obviously that's, that's an unaccompanied assignment. And it happens with, uh, with great frequency now, much more so than it did in, in the era when I was a, a soldier. And at this time, Ed, what was your MOS? Well, it, so um, my, my I was an engineer officer in in the army. The uh, the MOS military occupational specialty is uh, is enlisted. We have that for in, in, enlisted soldiers and non commissioned officers. Officers, the system's a little different, but it, it's it's similar. I was an engineer specialist. And Corky, I was a supply officer in the 82nd Airborne Support Command. And. Did you certainly? Uh, although the service academies didn't accept women until the you know the mid nineteen seventies, there certainly were female officers in the military before then. However, I, I do have to ask: this is still the mid nineteen eighties. Did you ever run into uh, anybody who may have had an issue taking orders uh, from a female officer? Um, I'm not sure about taking orders. I just. And thankfully, it was only for three months. Um, yeah, I'm not a, I'm more of a, a treat people with respect. You know, I, I respect that they had way more experience than I did in the military. So I'm, I tell my platoon sergeant, hey, I'm here to learn. Show me what you need, you know, and or what I need to do, and I'm happy to, to take your coaching. And he just gave me the slow up and down look and just said, you'll figure it out, ma'am. So that was. Okay, so it's not the same as what I thought it would be. You know, I didn't have a platoon sergeant who was very helpful in that respect. Um, but then I got switched to a different platoon, just so happens. I, I, didn't, I didn't report that incident. It wasn't a big deal. And, um, and I got along great with the soldiers. But I had a bigger issue with my battalion commander who I think had an issue with the fact that I could run faster than he could, <laughs> to be honest with you. Well... Fast forward, Memorial Day weekend, 1987. I remember it well. Of course, I was a young guy, but uh, that was quite the fun weekend. You guys were married, uh, which makes you, what, 33 years now? Um, how, long yeah. did you guys, uh, yeah. how long did you guys stay in the service, and, and what were your, uh, were your separation dates coordinated, or how did that work? So, so I think, uh, Corky, you probably teed me up for that one. Yes, uh, so, so I ended up staying in a little over seven and a half years, uh, I I had orders to go to school to re, uh, in, in order to return to West Point and uh, and be an instructor uh, at West Point. I was going to teach philosophy in a in a philosophy department that was being newly formed, and I had uh, I I was accepted to school and I had orders to go to California uh, to show up for uh, for uh, school to earn my master's degree. And uh, a little over a month before I was supposed to actually leave Fort Bragg, I was uh, my orders were rescinded, and I was told that we weren't going to do that. So uh, I I went to Washington and I, I talked to the assignments officer and 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 tried to figure out why. I never really got a good answer to that question. Uh, but the more um, the more problematic thing for me was that they really didn't have anything for me to do. Uh, I, I had uh, I had had uh, some really good assignments at Fort Bragg, and I was uh, I, I was qualified beyond my rank. And they, you know, I asked what what they had for me if I couldn't 
go to um, the school to Stanford. I was actually going to go to Stanford and be an instructor at West Point, and they offered me a recruiting job. Uh, so driving to high schools and recruiting students for um, uh, for uh, the military, and for me as a as a 27 year old at that point, it just didn't seem like how I wanted to spend the next three or four years of my life. Uh, Corky and I talked about it, and I at that point I decided to uh, to transition uh, out out of the military, and that's a different story. Uh, but Corky was was still in at that time and she actually had an obligation to uh, to stay uh, but at this particular time uh, they offered her the option to uh, to do reserve service for a period of time so she was able to get out uh, uh, right around the time that I did so I did a half active reserve and your first so she job... did uh, a, a mix of uh, of active duty and, and reserve and your first job post military corky was Oh, well, we went to South Carolina where Ed was at Michelin Tire, and I worked as a manufacturing supervisor at Cryovac. It's a manufacturing facility. And what, what were they manufacturing? Uh, my particular area of the plant was strength off, that's a 3M or window film. And, and uh, yeah. And, and, your, and your, your skills that you learned and honed in the military, were uh, how directly relatable were there to you? Uh, supervising this manufacturing. Um, I, I, I'm trying to think. I think that if I had had a longer time in the military, probably it would have been a lot more experience. But I think a lot of it has to do with how you treat people. And I was not the office person sitting in the office on the computer. I was more of the person on the floor. And it was very hard to keep those big machines running. And you needed maintenance often. And there were three plants under one roof. And it was basically, uh, I made nice with the the one team that was the repair guys. And so I made sure to get, you know, my guys what they needed to, to operate well. And so I just had a more of a, um, I'm not a hazing kind of leader or like an order nor around. I'm just trying to help them out do, to do their jobs. So and, and I wasn't just that very active with and, that. So. And I wouldn't imagine... Um, Anybody had any really issue taking you know you being a female? Uh, did you do you think the fact that you had served in the army as an officer gave you some some amount of credibility or some sort of uh, extra respect uh, among people who may um, maybe maybe not had ever taken a uh, taken orders from a woman? I think so, and I think the fact that that mixed with the fact that I uh, I treated them respectfully was probably helpful. One thing I did find about having being a graduate of West Point. It really made opening the doors for job opportunities much faster or much much easier because all someone had to do was look at your resume. Oh, West Point grad, and then they want to talk to you. Right. So. Um, and Ed, what were you doing you at the Michelin? Respect, yeah. Ed, what were you doing at Michelin? Uh, I was an industrial engineer. Uh, I. <laughs> Uh, one one of the things I was doing was cutting people's pay. So I I would. Um, Go out to uh, to a, a particular job site, do time and motion studies to uh, to um, chronicle how people were doing their job and doing it effectively and and uh, turning out more uh, um, or producing at a higher rate. I would um, memorialize that and put it in writing, uh, set up the new uh, pay scale, and the new pay scale invariably was lower than the old one. So I was like the the black hand of death whenever I came out to uh, 
a job site. They knew I was there to cut their pay, which was um, which was not awesome. That that was uh, that was not a uh, an enjoyable thing to do. I I, I did um, cost benefit studies for for things uh, as well. I, I did an automation study uh, that that sort of thing, but it was. Uh, I, it quickly became clear to me that uh, my future didn't lie in uh, production and operations. Uh, so, so I found my way to uh, sales and marketing after that. Yeah. So uh, you you did I, make the tradition. I'm going to throw back one thing though, uh, or, or go back to something that Corky said. When when we went out, we didn't have specific experience that that was valuable to employers. What we had was leadership experience, and and. And that was nonspecific, but it was it was in high demand. So you know, when when we would interview uh, with potential employers, they weren't interested that we had some technical skill. They were interested that that we were uh, experienced leaders. Um, my first job in the in the army as a 21 year old uh, officer was to uh, to run a platoon of 32 people. So I had 32 people who reported to me when I was a very young man. And, and it was just part of how you learn to be a leader and how you learn uh, to motivate people. Well, that, so we had that experience, and that experience mattered. And that's something that I hadn't really thought of. I actually remember having a conversation some decades ago with your father about, you know, how how does one get into a service academy and you know what do you have to be good at and i was surprised to find out that it was less about academic performance and not to say that you can be an academic slouch and get in but he made a point to say it was much less about academic performance and more about leadership qualities and they're looking for people to be leaders which makes perfect sense and of course that translated into obvious gainful employment for the both of you uh in in your mm -hmm. civilian life now you eventually, Ed, you transitioned to your pursuit towards your your ultimate career in in academia. Uh, take us along that course, if you will. Yeah, so so that was an accident. Um, I, I I had an epiphany when I was working in production and operations at Michelin or, or production and engineering that that was not the life for me. And so uh, at Michelin, the the only other. Uh, options in the business was to go into the sales and marketing side. They have dealerships uh, around the, the world, of course. Uh, and I was told that I couldn't make that transition for a while. Uh, so I wasn't, uh, again, I was uh, I was a little bit anxious. I wasn't going to stay in, in a job that I, I didn't find interesting and rewarding. So I went to school. I, I figured I needed a, an education. So I, I went to uh, to school to study marketing, I, I went to uh, to the Kellogg School at Northwestern, which which had a very fine marketing program, and I immersed myself there. And halfway through, one of the professors asked me if I would help him start a retail research center, and so it just fell in my lap. It took me about ten seconds to say yes, and and that's how I started on that track. I became the, uh, uh, the managing director of this retail center at, uh, at the Kellogg School at Northwestern University, which led to many other things that, that happened after that, and, and a life in academics. And you were, maybe I had switched them around, you did your, your master's or your Ph.D. at, at Northwestern? Uh, I did uh, a master's degree, uh, an, an MBA, or what was 
what, what we would now call an MBA at the Kellogg School, and simultaneously I, uh, I got a degree in marketing communications from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. So I did those two at the same time. But then we went on after that to go to Philadelphia, and you got your Ph.D. at Wharton. Right. Which was yeah. in, and, and in, after your Ph.D., did you go straight to SMU? I did. It turned out that SMU had uh, had recently gotten uh, a substantial endowment uh, for a retail research center, and I happen to have experience in that area. So I'm I'm pretty sure that that's one of the reasons that uh, SMU uh, offered me the position and asked me to to come and and not only join the faculty but uh, run the retail research center at SMU. And you're not the only one in your household who knows a little something about marketing. I seem to recall several times over the past few decades hearing about um, something that, uh, Corky, you've been involved in, Juice Plus? Oh, yeah. I was introduced to Juice Plus, uh, let's see, 20 years ago, 20, yeah, 19, 20 years ago. And it's, you know, just a whole food supplement. At the time, we didn't have a lot of money, so that's how I ended up getting into it. A year later, after I realized that uh, I liked the idea of my kids and me getting the fruits and vegetables in our bodies, and so I had to get it cheaper, and that's how I became a rep. And you, I'm not a hard charging. I'm not a hard charging rep. I, I I'm not a big hard salesperson, so I, I make enough to uh, pay for our our um, supply and a little more. That's all. And even much more recently, you are involved in uh, homewares. Uh, do you want to talk about that at all? <laughs> no. Oh, you talking about um, the compare store? Uh, no, the uh, there's, store? I, I, I've been invited several times over the last week to participate in a Pampered Chef. Oh, that was, um, I was doing a favor for a friend and I was hosting a party. So that's the first time I don't even have any Pampered Chef myself. Um, okay, so I thought there was a new venture on your help, part. Help a friend, but. I did work at the container store for eight years, um, or almost eight years, and I i guess it was uh, fortuitous. I quit last August before the pandemic hit, but um, I was I didn't need the money at the time. I just wanted to have some fun and do 12, 15 hours, and they really wanted me there 25, 30 hours, you know, the hardworking person, and they, they want to keep you there, and um, I didn't want that. You know, life's too short. I want to have uh, enjoy my family. And of course, so speaking... while Corky was go ahead. While, while Corky was talking about retail, I, or while I was talking about retail, Corky was actually doing it. Yeah. So. You guys balance each other out in some regard. Expert. Now, now mentioning the, <laughs> yeah. the pandemic, uh, you know, everybody is being challenged right now. Ed, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the broadcast, you are the department chair uh, in the marketing department at SMU, and. What kind of challenges uh, have you dealt with uh, trying to do your job and manage uh, dealing with everything else that's going on? Wow. How much time do you have? Uh, not um, too much. <laughs> we're, we're getting to the end. Not much. <laughs> no, so uh, the, uh, the answer to the, uh, to the question is it's been really challenging. And, and, and one of the counterintuitive things that, that has come from this, uh, enrollments at in our uh, business school have just exploded in the uh, in the last few months. So we have more students, I believe, more graduate students than we have had in, in decades at the uh, at the Cox School of Business at SMU. Uh, 
it's a good time not to be looking for a job, but rather to be uh, improving your skills, or, or at least that's, uh, that's the way it appears. So at the same time that we have these exploding enrollments, our class sizes, uh, because of social distancing and the constraints in, in actual seats in classrooms, have, uh, are, are really binding. So we've been putting classes in different rooms around campus and coordinating with, uh, with online or, or what we call hybrid or flex uh, uh, types of classes. So it's been really challenging, and, uh, and we are more than holding our own. So, uh, so we're feeling really good about where we are. We just hope that, uh, that our undergraduate students don't start getting sick and, and you know, uh, well, well, is there any? We we we, we want to keep people from getting sick. So. Of course, and uh, I don't know how much time you have to work uh, on these types of things right now, but I would imagine uh, you're publishing. Is there any specific type of research you're working on right now that you want to plug or you want to give us an idea about? Well, yeah, yeah uh, it, it almost by necessity the kinds of research that that we do sound arcane, uh, or the it would sound arcane, but. At least I do work that relates to shopping and retail, which most people can can imagine. I am really interested in how people consume stuff, uh, consumable goods, and, and so uh, you know if you um, if you buy uh, a bunch of yogurt, you know what what do you buy? Uh, do you buy different uh, different brands, different flavors, and how? Uh, and how should retailers package variety packs, or you know what should they charge for uh, for customizable packs and things like that? So, so that's an area that I've, I'm doing specific research in now. But I've I've done a, a whole lot of work in retail assortments and retail pricing as well. And I would imagine, uh, while we're talking about it, given the the state of of the opening and closing and and social distancing and people having access to retail spaces over the last six months, I would imagine that this pandemic has uh, maybe given birth to a whole new field of of how we study and how we we figure out how how retail operations and how we make our choices. Did I just give you a research uh, idea? Yeah. Well, I, I you you certainly voiced something that that I've been thinking about. Uh, in, in fact, in my wearing my hat as uh, as the marketing department chair, we're uh, we've decided to offer a course as quickly as we can, uh, where our students work with faculty members in different industries to try to understand how uh, consumer behaviors have changed, how you know industry competition has changed as a result of the pandemic, and then to try to forecast which changes are going to are going to persist, which are going to stick around, and which are going to revert to the way they were, and maybe which are going to turn into something new. Um, our, our marketing advisory board has told us that that's a really interesting topic, and, and they don't have time to work on it. So uh, so we're hoping uh, that together with our students, we'll be able to say something meaningful about what the future holds post-pandemic. Ed Fox, Corky Fox, thank you guys so much for being part of this podcast. We're just getting started here um, with this podcast. Hopefully, we'll be around for a very long time. I'm so glad, um, honored to have you guys on the podcast this early on. Um, stay healthy. Uh, we'll talk to you guys later. You too. Thank, thank you. you.
This has been an episode of the Square Peg Podcast, starring Andrew Lawrence and his cast of Mold Breakers, Trailblazers, and Takers of Roads Less Traveled. Until then, we'll see you on the next Road Less Traveled? <laughs>